This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Welcome to In Legal Terms from MPB Think Radio, the show all about you and your rights. I'm Liz Gill with Professor Richard Gershon of the University of Mississippi School of Law. Hello, Professor Gershon. Good morning, Liz. It's great to be here with you. And I want to give a shout out. We have Carol Murphy in our studio today. Carol uh, works with the Judicial College as well. The Mississippi Judicial College has been there 22 years and updates all the bench books for all the courts. And uh, they couldn't function without her. She's not mic'd up today, but we will get her mic'd up one of these days. But it's great to welcome uh, Justice Randy Pierce, who is the director of the Mississippi Judicial College. Uh, He was a Supreme Court justice here in Mississippi. Um, He is a published author uh, and really just a great teacher, great all-around guy, honestly. And we're happy to have him here to talk about the Judicial College today. So, uh, Justice Pierce, will you please tell us a little bit about your background? I mentioned that you're an author, but how did you come to the Mississippi Judicial College? Uh, When I was in law school, quite frankly, I learned about the Judicial College and didn't give it a second thought then because, number one, I didn't plan on becoming a judge, and number two, certainly not uh, to ultimately be the the director. But when I graduated law school here at Ole Miss in 97, I went back home, uh, Leakesville, Mississippi, where, where I'm from and I love and um, and so I started practicing law there, uh, went to the legislature for a time. While I was a member of the legislature, got appointed to become a chancery court judge, which we'll talk about in a little while, and from there on the Supreme Court. When I knew I wasn't going to seek a second term on the Supreme Court, uh, I was looking at opportunities, and Justice Ann Lamar, who was on the Board of Governors, uh, was the chair of the Board of Governors at, at the Judicial College, and then interim uh, be, uh, Dean Debbie Bell uh, talked to me about considering this and uh, gave it some thought and I'm glad I did and I'm enjoying it. It's, it's a great honor and privilege and, and a great uh, service I think uh, because I've always been uh, tuned in to public service and, and this is an opportunity for me to extend that. Well, you've spent your career on public service, and it's greatly appreciated. You know, the judicial college is unique. I mean, other states, you travel around. You've been traveling to the National Judicial Conference, things like that. Mississippi's program is different than any other state, and I think we're the envy of other states. Why is that? Well, we were the first to start a judicial college for state judges. And, uh, in fact, it goes way back to 1970, and next year we will be celebrating 50 years of judicial education in Mississippi. But Mississippi was the first full-time designated uh, or state to have a designated judicial training arm. Noah Soggy Sweat uh, was on faculty here and, and I think it was about a $90,000 federal grant that began this thing. And now every state has some form of, of judicial education. Uh, some states do it through their administrative office of courts. And there's a handful of states like us that uh, that provide training as a division of a law school or a higher education uh, entity. And so we, we've been around now almost 50 years. Well, it's great. And, and uh, now, how is the judicial college related to the law school? How does that work? Well, the law school and the uh, judicial college is a division of the institutions of higher learning. And so uh, as... The way we're set up statutorily is, is is in that way. We are budgeted by the state legislature. Um, years ago, uh, the Judicial College 
was funded through uh, special assessments through the special fund program, uh, whether it be filing a part of a filing fee or assessment on a ticket. But now we're 100 percent funded by the general fund of the state legislature. Right, so you're continuing. And, and uh, but we love the affiliation here at the law school because we can do some programs together. And, uh, you know, it's been it's been great to work with the judicial college. Uh, brings judges in to us. We have some of our faculty have taught at some of your programs. Absolutely. In fact, we encourage our faculty here and the faculty at MC. We've had several of their, their uh, professors come over and speak at our Jackson seminars. Next March, every two years, uh, we have a judicial education uh, training session for our Supreme Court justices and Court of Appeals judges by themselves. It's a smaller group, but we have that in Oxford, and uh, Professor Hofheimer, for example, Professor Green, and others have come over and, and spoken to those judges based on specific topics. And so um, so it's, it's a great benefit for us, and a lot of states envy that, because we can tap into the intellectual, uh, I guess, muscle of a law school and law professors to help educate our judges. In legal terms, is so uh, happy to, to welcome former Mississippi Supreme Court Justice Randy Pierce to our show today. And this is a call-in show, folks, so we would love for you to call in to be a part of our discussion. This morning we're talking about the Mississippi Judicial College and the different courts of our land. So if you have a question, now's the time to call and get it in. Our number is one eight seven seven. MPB ring. That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. You can also send us an email to our address legal terms at mpbonline.org. I'm very interested to hear that it's going to be 50 next year. I know MPB, the Mississippi Authority for Educational Television, also was created 50 years ago. So uh, 1970, that legislature really put forth a lot of things. So why was it created in the first place? As with any profession or vocation or any work we do, uh, there needs to be a lifelong learning. And continuing education for judges is no different than continuing education for teachers or for certified public accountants. I'm also a CPA, and CPAs are required to get 40 hours of continuing education a year. Lawyers are required to get 12 uh, hours each year of CLE, continuing legal education. And uh, the courts are no different. We want to make sure that, that as laws change, that our judges are aware of those changes. As cases interpret laws uh, differently, uh, we want to make sure our judges are up to speed on on the latest, uh, not only in Mississippi, but U.S. Supreme Court rulings as well. Well, that's, you know, that's really important. I mean, continuing education, but especially with judges, because you got turnover. Uh, The judges are elected in Mississippi, so we have, have, you know, a constantly new group of judges that need to be trained, whereas lawyers... We have new ones every year when the, when people pass the bar. But once somebody's a lawyer, they stay a lawyer. But judges, you know, do do come and go from the bench. So that seems like really important. In fact, this year was the highest number of new judges that we've ever had. Uh, we we have forty one, I believe, new chancery, new circuit, and new county court judges. That's a lot. Uh, we currently have fifty seven circuit judges throughout our state. We have fifty two chancery court judges. We have 22 counties that have county court judges, and there are 31 total county court judges. And so when you add those up and then look at 41, 42 judges, I can't remember, it's one or the other, 
um, that's a lot of turnover. That's huge. And so we, uh, last December, after the election was over and we knew who those judges would, would be, uh, we brought them to Jackson, gave them a very intense training uh, for new judges. Uh, we sent also by court rule, those new judges have to go to the National Judicial College to receive a two-week training. Uh, the, I'm very proud of the fact that um, when I was a chancery judge in 2005 and I went to that, they did not have a track for what are limited jurisdiction courts like chancery court in Mississippi. It was all one approach to education. And since I've been at the Judicial College, I've talked to the folks out in, in, at the National Judicial College. I've met with them. And now, because of our request, they have two tracks. And so our limited jurisdiction courts, like Chancery Court judges now in Mississippi, that don't, for example, have Fourth Amendment issues that, that as criminal cases, they don't try capital murders. Now they have a separate track out there. And, and I'm very proud of the fact that Latin, this year was the first year that that was accomplished. And it was because... We in Mississippi, uh, myself, our chairman of our board, Chancery Judge Cynthia Brewer, who also teaches at the National Judicial College from time to time, we talk to them about the importance of that, and now they've changed it. And judges from all over the country that come to National Judicial College that can benefit from that suggestion we made because it's just it needs to be beneficial. We need to maximize every minute of training that we have those judges to make sure that the content is useful. And one of the things, you actually, the Judicial College actually provides funding for some of this travel for judges to go to conferences because the legislature and the college represent or recognize how important this training is. And judges don't make a lot of money necessarily. Well, it's it's important for us. You know, the AOC, uh, we're funded uh, as far as judicial training. The Administrative Office of Courts has, has funding for trial judge circuit chancery we help out with county court judges in that respect but but um, but a lot of the costs associated with the national judicial college the uh, tuition uh, for that two-week conference is paid through the mississippi judicial college and so it was important for us because to be good stewards of the dollars that we spend to make sure that the all 100 percent of that training was relevant and i talked to the judges i was on the way to to the national association of state judicial educators conference which met weekend before last in Denver. And I stopped off uh, by the National Judicial College and met with the 21 judges we had out there. And they, to a person, told me how valuable it was. In fact, I had one judge that did not want to go. He called and he said, I don't want to go. Do I have to go? That's a long time. And I said, well, you have to go. The court rules require you to go. And I promise you it's going to be beneficial to you as a judge. And he not only loved it at the very last night, uh, before the Friday, the Thursday when they came home, uh, he was the person selected from Mississippi to talk about the two weeks of training, and he talked about how beneficial it was to him. Well, that's great, and I know we, I know Liz, we need to take a break, but it's uh, we'd love to continue this conversation with Justice Beard. Well, we will continue. We're going to continue talking about the Mississippi Judicial College after our break. So, if you have a question about uh, how our judges and how they are trained, we'd love for you to call us one. 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. You can also send us an email to legalterms at mpbonline.org. I'm going to empower our listeners. How can you select who gets to attend the Mississippi Judicial College? It's better than voting in American Idol or Dancing with the Stars. We'll tell you when you come back from the break. You're listening to In Legal Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. 
listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. The legal information presented on In Legal Terms is meant to provide general information about the topics discussed and is not necessarily the opinion of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. The information conveyed does not create any type of attorney-client relationship. Please consult an attorney provider before making any decisions about your specific legal questions. Welcome back to In Legal Terms. Not everyone has a chance to listen to our whole show live, so if you've missed any of our program, you can listen at inlegalterms.mpbonline.org. It's also available on the MPB Public Media app, as are all our local shows. I'm Liz Gill here with Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law. This morning, we're talking about the Mississippi Judicial College with Justice Randy Pierce. Now, you get to decide who's going to attend the Mississippi Judicial College on the ballot that I printed out at the Secretary of State's website. When I typed in my home address, I see that I'm going to be voting for chancery clerk, circuit clerk, uh, justice court judge, and the... uh, the, the winners of these elections of the, the judges uh, will attend the Judicial College in December and January. Justice Pierce, uh, remind me, what's the difference between a, a chancery judge and a circuit judge? What, what do those two different courts, how are they delineated? What is limited jurisdiction? First of all, good question. Chancery courts uh, in Mississippi are provided under Section 159 of the Mississippi State Constitution, and it limits the areas that chancery judges can hear. For example, they hear divorce, they hear wills and estate matters, they hear matters of equity, a minor's business, and, and so forth. Whereas Section 156 of our Mississippi Constitution uh, sets out the circuit courts as the basically the court at law. It's the catch-all court. So I tell students, I teach Mississippi civil practice here at the law school, and I tell my law students, if you're out there and you can't figure out which court to, to file it in, it most likely belongs in circuit court. So circuit court is a general jurisdiction court. Uh, it hears everything, a lot of criminal matters, but also civil matters, whether that be a, a fender bender, a slip and fall, uh, some type of civil litigation, whereas chancery courts are limited to those areas set out in the Constitution. And Justice Pierce, we were talking during the break about justice courts. Now, justice court judges don't have to be lawyers. Is that correct? That's correct. In fact, uh, we have 100 and, I believe, 97 justice court judges throughout our state. Depends on the size of your county. Green County, where I'm from, uh, has two. Most rural counties have two. Uh, some of the more populated count- counties have more, obviously. And justice court judges, and they're also a constitutional court. There are four constitutional courts, uh, Supreme Court, uh, Circuit Court, Chancery Court, and Justice Court judges. And so there is no requirement that a justice court judge uh, be a lawyer. And that's why it's important for us at the Judicial College to not only provide more training, but also provide technical assistance. You mentioned Carol Murphy, who's sitting in here listening this morning with us. She and Bill Charlton are the two attorneys we have on staff that draft all of our technical assistance. In fact, 
any listener, any non-lawyer, anybody that wants to can go to our website, which is mjc.olemiss.edu, and you can look at all of our publications. We have bench books for judges, bench books for youth courts, bench books for justice court judges, um, and we have manuals for clerks, circuit and chancery clerks, um, justice court clerks, and things of that nature. And so for justice court judges, because of the, uh, the fact that we need to provide more training, they're mandated to get 24 hours of training per year, whereas the other judges, the ones that are mandated, are mandated to get 12 hours per year. And the election is coming up, as Liz mentioned. The one unique thing about justice court judges, all of our trial courts in Mississippi are, are elected. Chancery Circuit County happen to be elected in even-numbered years. They're, they coincide with your federal elections, like uh, in 2008, uh, 12, 16, 20, you'll have trial judge elections. But justice court judges, they are they coincide with the statewide elections and local elections, and they're partisan. Uh, the other judges are nonpartisan, and that's a that's a whole topic for another day. I, my preference is they all be nonpartisan, even justice court judges. But uh, but nevertheless, they they will be elected this year, and out of that 197 until the election's over, we're not sure how many we will have that are new. Uh, we anticipate around 50, and they will have to come to Jackson the first two weeks in December, have some intensive training, and then, by statute, pass a minimum competency exam, which we've drafted and the Supreme Court approves. To pass, They have to pass that exam before they can take uh, the bench. They have to pass it within six months. So uh, we hope that we'll have 100% passage rate uh, when we do this in December. And then Liz, Liz mentioned circuit and chancery clerks, too. We will train them the second week of December, uh, December 9th through the 13th. And we bring in experienced clerks. Uh, Bill Charlton and I will teach, and and, uh, and we bring in judges and other clerks to teach as well. Well, that's great. Now, would you talk just briefly about what, what a justice court judge does that's different from a circuit court judge or a chancery court judge? Sure. Well, well, justice court and municipal court, for that matter, are not courts of record, and, and they have records. That's not what I mean. But usually in circuit, or always in circuit, Chancery County, you got a court reporter there. They take down what is said in court. Well, justice courts are, are courts, they're, they're civil jurisdictions, $3,500, has to be 3500 or less. They have misdemeanors uh, and some preliminary matters and felony cases, preliminary uh, hearings and things of that nature, initial appearances and so forth. Um, and, and so the difference between justice and municipal, if a person goes to justice court or municipal court and they do not like what the judge does and they want to appeal it, they can appeal it to uh, circuit court in most counties. Uh, but if there's a county court, it will go to county court if it's a larger county. And then they get it, what's called a de novo appeal. It's essentially a do-over before a judge with a court reporter and so forth and so on. So they'll have a second opportunity at it. But most people that come in contact with our courts are coming into contact with justice courts and municipal courts. And so that's why we not only train them about the educational component, the technical side of it, the law side of it, but also uh, we want to make sure that, that our judges understand temperament is, is critical and making sure we treat everybody with respect um, and uh, and, and make sure that people that come in our court are treated equally. And uh, so we do mostly technical and law-related training, but also we provide training on best practices for how to be an effective judge. Fantastic. And I think we have a caller, please. We do. We're going to go now to Chris, who has called in from Bay St. Louis. Chris, thanks for being a part of In Legal Terms today. Go ahead. Hey, good morning, y'all. Uh, judge Pierce, I have a question in municipal courts. 
it seems like it's a little bit hard to get a fair shake if you go in front of a judge that's paid for by the city. And in, in my case, the city's got me on a property rights issue. And I'm just scratching my head, what, what recourse do I have if, if I feel like that I'm not getting a fair shake with the, with the municipal judge, who, again, is paid for by the city, the lawyer, the prosecutor's paid for by the city. Everybody's paid for by the city except for me and my lawyer. So I appreciate you what you've done, and I knew you a long time ago. Yes, sir. Anyway, thanks so much. Thank you. And, I, and Bay St. Louis and Hancock County is one of my favorite places. I love it down there. Um, but as I said, I mentioned earlier, uh, and the structure of our courts are different. Justice courts or county courts are paid for by the counties in which they're located. Uh, the justice court judge is the county prosecutors paid for by the taxpayers of that county. And so there's some similarities between municipal and justice in that respect. Um, but that's why we have a de novo appeal route, uh, because we want to make sure that if a person doesn't feel like she or he uh, received an appropriate ruling, that they can appeal it to a state court or a county court. In your case, in Hancock County, you now have a county court. You're, in fact, Hancock County, Trent Favre uh, is the new county court judge there. You would appeal to, to, to that court. And, and essentially have an opportunity to present your case again. So that's a safeguard uh, in place. But, uh, but yeah, we, we try our best to, to make sure that, that the appellate process is, is – in fact, when I was a chancery judge, and I could tell when I was issuing a ruling that one side or the other didn't like it just by the expression on their face sometimes – and, uh, and I would always encourage them. I said, look, um, I, I'm, I'm not perfect. I'm a human being just like y'all are. I've done the best I could with the rules of evidence and what's been presented to me, and I've issued my ruling. But I would encourage you, if you're not happy with it, please appeal me because I don't want to get this wrong. And, uh, and I would encourage – and I think we tell our judges that, we, you know, to leave our pride at the door, do our best to make good, sound decisions. But if folks aren't happy with it, they, they have that avenue of appeal. Justice Pierce, uh, I want to catch you on one thing. Uh, We're hoping to have a future in legal terms, which is all on Latin. What is a de novo appeal? (laughs) And and, uh, essentially, uh, I'm going to use some of my uh, Greene County lingo here. It's essentially a do-over. It's Uh, an opportunity to start all over in a court of record. Fantastic. Well, see that that that's why I, I hope to, to have a future show where we talk about uh, what some of these uh, uh, Latin law terms are because they come into our regular vernacular and we want to remember what what those are. Absolutely. Who all attends? Let's go back to your your conferences. I noticed you're having some in December and January. Who attends those? They are limited to those particular judges or those clerks that are that are, that are uh, required to attend or that are in, uh, attending. Uh, we don't open them up to just anybody because it uh, it's the Board of Governors, and I agree that we need to have frank discussions and we need people to be able to freely and openly discuss issues. And so it's limited to those judges or clerks, or we also train court administrators and court reporters, and so we limit it to those uh, attendees so we can make sure that we, no one feels like there's some chilling effect that they can't talk about an issue that they may not want to admit that they're having problems with if, if it was open to just everyone. 
it, you know, it's so it's so important. What the work the work that you do is so important because these judges, you know, one of the things that you, you talked about was, uh, you know, all the judges are paid by the state in some respect or the federal government if they're federal judges. But there is a code of conduct for judges that says they have to be unbiased. That's one of the first important things. And so do, do you talk about those ethical rules? It, Absolutely. In fact, the uh, we have a commission on judicial performance in Mississippi. Uh, that commission uh, has a prosecutor, an investigator, and if a judge is violating the code of judicial conduct, which is you – can, you can look that up. By the way, the Mississippi Supreme Court's website is courts.ms.gov. And you can access the Mississippi Rules of Court for free on there, and you can look at the Mississippi Rules of Court. And judges, like lawyers, lawyers have the Mississippi Rules of Professional Conduct. Mississippi judges have the Code of Judicial Conduct, and that applies to all judges. And if there is a situation where a judge steps out of the bounds on an ethical issue, there is a place where people can go to make those complaints. And, and it happens. Every year there are judges that are reprimanded. Every year there are lawyers that are reprimanded by the bar. And the person or the entity, rather, that has the last word on legal, lawyer discipline and judicial discipline is the Mississippi Supreme Court. And so ultimately, if there is a complaint that a judge has behaved unethically, uh, then at that point the um, there can be a complaint that will be investigated if the prosecutor and the commission on judicial performance believes the judge violated the code of judicial conduct they will recommend a punishment and it could be a private reprimand or all the way to removal from office so there is a an avenue there that's created to make sure that people have trust in our judicial branch of government through the code of judicial conduct well, fantastic. And I know, Liz, I guess it's time for another break. I mean, the hour is moving quickly. It is. And I want to remind everyone that we will have the websites on the sh- website for this show. This show, remember, our website is inlegalterms.mpbonline.org. And anything we throw out, we try to make sure it's on our website. We're talking with Justice Randy Pierce about the Mississippi Judicial College. We would love for you to be a part of our show. It's one 877 mpb ring That's one 877 672 7464 for your questions. You could also send us an email, legalterms at mpbonline.org. And I want everyone to think about what your schedule looks like for next Tuesday. I have some very important information for you when we come back from the break. I think you'll want to hear. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. Listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. Professor Richard Gershon is our expert, and we hope you'll subscribe to our podcast. There are lots of different podcasting platforms for your smartphone or for your tablet. I happen to like Podcast Addict. I download it to my phone, and then there's a plus that takes me to a page to search for podcasts. Then I type in the name of the podcast. If it's going to be in legal terms, then you put that in. It brings 
brings up in legal terms, you can touch on the photo of it. You can hit subscribe and then you're notified if any new episodes are loaded up. This morning, we're talking about the Mississippi Judicial College with our guest, Justice Randy Pierce. Now, I want you to think about your schedule next Tuesday. It's Tuesday, November 5th. Is it going to be a day like today? Are you going to have an ordinary day or will your routine be a little different? Some registered voters are eligible to vote by absentee ballot because of age, health, work demands, temporary relocation for educational purposes, maybe like college, or their affiliation with the U.S. Armed Forces. So please check with your circuit or municipal clerk to determine if you're entitled to vote by an absentee ballot and learn the procedures for doing so. If you know you'll vote by an absentee ballot, you can contact your circuit or municipal clerk's office anytime within 45 days of the election. In Hines County, where I happen to live, the circuit clerk's office is going to be open for absentee voting this Saturday before the election from 8 a.m. until noon. The deadline to cast an absentee ballot in the circuit clerk's office is noon on the Saturday before an election. But if you mail an absentee ballot in, then it has to be returned by mail to the circuit clerk's office no later than Monday, November 4th of 2019. We're talking with uh, Justice Randy Pierce about the Municipal College, and we must have said something that has spurred the phone lines because we have all four lines full. So we're going to start first in Gulfport and go to Wren. Thanks for calling into in legal terms go ahead well good morning um i know judge pierce uh it's been a while since i've seen him um i would like to ask two questions the first being what does the judicial college do with training judges on the rules of evidence to me that's kind of one of the most important things going it's kind of like the carpenter's tools of the trade that's my first question and the second question is about uh, court terms. Uh, I know this is constitutional. Um, courts must hold uh, sessions in counties according to the Constitution, and it may require an amendment. I've always felt that we need to do away with court terms and have a, a uh, let the resources go where they are needed. Um, so that's my question. Uh, good questions, and good to hear your voice. It's been a while. Training justice, uh, training judges regarding rules of evidence. In fact, Carol Murphy and I have been talking about this for some time. We do have, from, for example, if there's a case that addresses a, a rule of evidence in, in a criminal matter, we may have a breakout session only for circuit judges. But what we started actually this uh, two weeks ago, when we, or last week actually, when we had our trial and appellate judges conference, we started at the very beginning. Justice Bobby Chamberlain is uh, has agreed to help us, and we've got uh, other judges and, and professors that are going to help us, and we're going through the rules of evidence from beginning to end over the next six conferences. And so that is very critical. I can remember as a chancery judge in the very first case that I had, I had uh, two very able lawyers, and one objected based on hearsay, 
and I'm sitting up there, you know, seven or eight years out of law school, and as he was objecting, thinking, well, I'm about, I'm about to have to make this decision. And then the other lawyer uh, said, no, Your Honor, there's an, an exception to the hearsay rule. And I knew very quickly that I needed to hone up and stay reading the Mississippi Rules of Evidence, and I read them over and over and over again. So we are doing some training on that. And your question regarding court terms, I, I realize some of those, uh, you know, each year the, for, for the public's benefit, the Mississippi Secretary of State's office puts out a, a, a publication that lists not only all the court terms, but all the different uh, court administrators, the court reporters for particular judges, and so forth. But they set out the, the terms of court in there as well, or list those terms of court. But you are correct in that... Uh, you know, I, I have to get back with you, uh, maybe, and let me give you my email address. It's R as in Randy, G as in Grant Pierce, P-I-E-R-C-E, R-G Pierce, at OleMiss.edu. And I can do some research for you to find out the constitutional requirement of, of setting those court terms. Uh, when I was a chancellor judge, our senior chancellor would do that, and, and I just went along with it because I was afraid to rock the boat. Uh, oftentimes, too, you'll hear judges refer to vacation time. And that means simply courts out of term. There is no term time, but judges can act in vacation time as well, which is usually the fourth week in a month, and uh, and hear matters and schedule matters, uh, especially for those those out of term times. But you're right; the court terms go way back. I mean, all I think, if I'm not mistaken, all four of our state constitutions refer to court terms in some fashion. I have to double check that, but I know the 1890 Constitution does as well, particularly for the Supreme Court. I think it says there. There are two terms, but really there are six sittings in each term. So the Mississippi Supreme Court is actually 12 months a year uh, at work. And so that's not explicit in the Constitution, but it's something that sh should be considered. Thank you very much. I'm an advocate of abolishing court terms. I know that might take a constitutional amendment, but it seems to me that's they're kind of ignored anyway because judges just set cases when they can. Uh, but appreciate the answer. Thank you. Yes, sir. And please email me if you need further uh, answer, uh, substance to that answer. Ren, we appreciate you calling in from Gulfport. Now we're going to move on to Meridian. Let's go to William. William, thank you so much for calling in to In Legal Terms and being part of our show. Go ahead. Thank you. Um, recently I was involved uh, in a justice court uh, proceeding in which uh, involved uh, illegal eviction. And I've since appealed the judgment that went against me. And the, during that, that trial, the, the judge didn't seem to be, uh, in terms of rules of evidence, didn't seem to be uh, very up to speed in the fact that after the trial, he, he said that he would have to render the verdict the next day after being some information. My question is, in terms of uh, a justice court setting, as opposed to an appeal to a circuit court, uh, it's kind of a two-part question. Number one, would would uh, the proceedings that took place in justice court would it rain any bearing or, or overshadow any of the of the circuit court uh, trial proceedings? And um, you know, you know, could I you know expect a circuit court judge to be you know more knowledgeable as as to the rules of evidence and um, you know, and basically, you know, more experienced in in the uh, matter of, uh, of trial proceedings. Uh, thank, thank you, William, for your question. The, uh, of course, the rules of evidence apply 
in in both courts, justice court and in circuit court. Um, the it's it's not always unusual to have a justice court judge or any judge say, well, let me reflect on this and I'll, I'll get a ruling out at a later date. But the rules of evidence should apply in all courts. In fact, from your area of the state, we had Judge Primo uh, come and speak to our justice court judges about a year ago. And we have these responders and we give examples of, of hearsay or admissibility of documents and things of that nature. Uh, and so we're providing that training to them as well. It doesn't mean we, we, we always get it right or they always get it right. And, and when you go to the circuit court, the fact is, is that all circuit judges are lawyers, most of which have practiced well beyond five years required when they take the bench. And so there is a, a level of knowledge that perhaps a, you know, a non-lawyer justice court judge may not have. But, uh, but nevertheless, that's why you have that, as I said earlier, the, as you know, the de novo appeal. And as far as what happens in justice court, even though de novo does mean essentially a do-over, uh, there could be statements made in justice court that could be used in the proceedings in, in circuit court. So the justice court proceedings are not to totally irrelevant. Uh, and so, for example, if a person wanted to, to take a position in justice court and then decide to take an opposite position in circuit court, that's certainly relevant and could be brought into, into the evidence in the circuit court matter. Uh, but those are those are two good questions. All right. Thank you so much, William, for calling in. We're going to go ahead and take our last break. We are speaking with Mississippi Judicial uh, College Director Justice Randy Pierce. Our number is 1-877-672-7464. You could also send us an email. Our address is legalterms at mpbonline.org. Now remember, next Tuesday is a busy day. It's not a national holiday, but it is very important to our country. We'll tell you about it when we come back. This is In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. Listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. Thank you for being a part of In Legal Terms. If you've missed any of our program, you can listen to the whole show on our website, inlegalterms.mpbonline.org. And that's also where we'll have some of the websites that uh, Justice Pierce has mentioned. Our show is also available on the MPB Public Media app, as are all our local shows. Also on the app, you can find all this information. I'm Liz Gill. I'm here with Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law. And as you just heard Karen say, we've got a pretty big election coming up. You can vote absentee this week and Saturday. 
And if you have a ballot that needs to be mailed in, it does need to be postmarked by Monday because general election day is Tuesday, November 5th. And we're talking with former Mississippi Supreme Court Justice Randy Pierce. We've got two calls on the line, so we're going to go to Matt, who has called in from Jackson. Matt, thanks for being part of In Legal Terms today. Go ahead. Yes. Um, I was just curious what tools or resources that uh, um, a judge would have at his disposal if he was to take over a court, say, that uh, was maybe like the city of Flowood municipal court that labels the building a police court, police courts is on there. Documents has an unusually heavy police presence in the courtroom. It just, from the very beginning, doesn't look like uh, everything is fair and impartial. What what resources would the judge have to help him address uh, those issues? And I'll take my answer offline. Uh, thank you, Matt, for for the call. Uh, of course, each court, uh, you know. Uh, Dean Gershon and I are about to talk about judicial independence, and it's critical that our judges recognize that we are a separate branch of government than the executive branch and legislative branch. We'll come back to that in a moment. But I'm glad you brought that up, and we will – I'll add – Carol's in here. I'll ask her to make a note of that, and we'll make sure at our next conferences we remind our judges not only must we uh, be independent in our rulings, but we also must make sure the courtroom itself uh, has the appearance of independence. And as far as an accounting, I'm an old CPA, and they taught us at USM when I was a student there um, that you need to be independent in fact and appearance. And so your independence needs to be true independence, but also you need to appear independent to those that uh, that you come into contact with, and that applies to courts as well. So, Matt, I'll take that under consideration. We'll make sure we add that to, to our programming. Justice Pierce, you mentioned independent judiciary is so important because I know um, in totalitarian countries, if they don't like what the judge's ruling is, they just remove the judge until they find a judge who will give the correct ruling. Why is it important to our democracy? Well, Dean, as, and I always call you Dean, by the way, uh, always, but, um, but I'm a football fan. I love football. I love golf. I don't get to play a lot of golf, but I enjoy it. And, uh, but back to, to use a football analogy, uh, there's no team in the country, and I know Matt Luke, our coach, would, would agree with this, that's going to win a championship without a strong offensive line. But the offensive line doesn't get the recognition, usually doesn't have his, his, his name called unless there's a holding penalty or something bad. And for judges, we, we're basically the offensive line in this thing, this tripartite three-branch three of government um, um, experiment we've, we created many moons ago in this great country of ours. And for our judges, we have to, to be independent. We have to recognize that that we are not the ones that can go out and hold press conferences and we can't uh, tweet and, and, and use social media in a way that uh, the, those in the executive branch and the legislative branch can. And, and so um, as part of, of that, and it goes back to Matt's question earlier, we have to have confidence in our judicial branch of government. Back, you know, Marbury versus Madison on, on the U.S. side of the Supreme Court, when it issued its ruling establishing uh, the, the inherent authority of the courts, 
And then in Mississippi, uh, there's a case in the 70s called Newell versus State that the, the Mississippi Supreme Court finally said to the legislature, you know, it's our authority to, to be independent from you in our court rules. And so as a result of that, this whole Mississippi Rules of Court book that we now have really stemmed from the Mississippi Supreme Court exercising its independence. As far as training on this, we have last week we had Anna O'Rourke with the Mississippi I mean with the United States Holocaust Museum come down and talk about the how the judicial independence was eroded during the time of Hitler. And then in next April, we're going to have former United States Attorney General under George W. Bush, uh, John Mukasey, come down and speak on judicial independence. He read a, wrote an article that appeared in the Memphis School of Law, uh, Memphis Law School Law Journal. And, uh, and so we always have to remind ourselves as judges that we're not, our goal is not to be popular, even though we're elected, it's not to be popular, but to follow the rule of law and to follow it consistently and maintain our independence from the other two branches of government. Fantastic. And we have one last call. Let's go to Larry in Hazelhurst. Larry, thank you so much for being part of In Legal Terms. Go ahead. Well, I'm concerned about the secret ballot. Uh, I'm a pastor, and I walk into the precinct, and I have to choose between the Republican or a Democrat table. That's no longer secret. Uh, I don't understand. Uh, I know everybody there. I'm probably their pastor. But uh, when I have to choose between one or the other, that's not So I don't go anymore. I go to the courthouse. I vote absentee. Because it, it, and it's unconstitutional to me. If you can't have a secret ballot, does that violate the Constitution? You know, I, Pastor, I think um, you know that you're talking probably about the uh, the uh, not the general election, which is secret. I don't, I don't think you have to go in and, and say you're a Democrat or Republican this coming Tuesday, uh, but that's only in the primaries, and you do have to choose one or the other in the primaries. Am I not correct about that, Justice Pierce? I think that's. That's correct. And, of course, at the Judicial College, uh, we leave that to the legislative branch and the executive branch through the Secretary of State's office to provide guidance there. The one thing that I learned early on as a judge and, and particularly as, as the director of the Judicial College is to stay in my lane. That's a little bit uh, out of our lane, and, and uh, so I'll defer answering that question. But we can certainly forward his concern to the Secretary of State's office for a response if that would be appropriate. Right. I think the primaries are actually run by the parties themselves anyway, so it's, right. uh, it really is uh, just the way it's done. I know some states you have to register. That's in this state, right. you can actually choose which primary you vote in, so there is a little bit more freedom here to do that. Yeah, and it's the same way with electing judges. All states don't elect judges. Some states, I know one state, last week I learned, they have lifetime appointments similar to the federal bench. In the federal, the president makes the appointment, and that, that appointment is confirmed by the Senate. And then the U.S. Senate here in Mississippi were elected. Uh, the trial judges are elected for four-year terms. The appellate judges for eight-year terms. Some states have re- what are called retention elections where they are appointed, and then sometime after their appointment, the voters get to decide whether they want to keep this judge or not. And, and if they don't retain that judge, the governor will make another appointment. So there's all types of selection processes out there for judges throughout our country. Okay, I'm going to put you on the spot. Do you have a preference? Uh, you know, that is a tough call um, because, you know, I was elected twice, once as as a chancery judge and then on the Supreme Court, and uh, that it worked well for me. The, the pluses for election is you get the people get a voice in who their judges are. At the same time, on the, uh, the plus for appellate, I, I would be the first to admit that maybe um, – 
when I ran uh, for the Supreme Court and even was appointed a chancery court judge, um, you know, was I the most qualified? Uh, that's that's a debatable question, I'm sure, by many. But um, but I think the appellate process may open up opportunities for people that don't want to go through the rigors of a campaign. Campaigning is hard. I mean, it's very very hard, and particularly judicial campaigns because. Their code of conduct don't allow judges to do certain things, to go certain places, uh, and, it, and it, uh, it it's a hard race to run. And uh, and so so we try our best, but look, there's no way to inoculate the system against politics. But whether it's a governor or the people selecting a judge, then you're going to have uh, some some political persuasion enter the equation. And I you know I don't know what the perfect system is, uh, but my job is to make sure the system we got. It, it, it runs as well as it can run, and uh, we do our best to make make a difference in the hope that our judges wake up every day and realize the importance of what they do, and um, and that we provide the training necessary to give people an opportunity to be heard in our courts and treated fairly, treated with respect and dignity, and then uh, then hope our judges will will do their best to to make good decisions in our appellate courts, if not, to reverse those decisions. Yeah, well, we are so lucky to have you heading our judicial college here in Mississippi and, and the training that you're doing. And uh, is in the last, we have about a, a minute and a half, so is there something you want the listeners to know about uh, the future of the judicial college, some things that you would like to do? Well, we are next, this Friday at Southern Miss on, on campus in Hattiesburg and in two weeks here at the law school having guardian ad litem training for youth court guardians ad litem. Uh, other entities, Mississippi College School of Law, Ole Miss CLE, provides that training. Uh, Child Advocacy Centers provide some. But we are, we've just published a guardian ad litem manual. And uh, if you're interested in that, it's, it's on our website. All of our website is available to you. All of our publications are available to the public without a password. But we're very proud of that. Bill Charlton and a committee work together, and we've just published that. And so we're going to do some training to introduce our youth court guardian ad litems, and these are these are guardian ad litems that are dealing with abuse and neglect to make sure that they, they know and understand best practices and for the first time in our history have a resource they can go to, uh, to, to learn and to make sure that they're dotting the I's and crossing the T's, and that's very important. Thank you, Justice Pierce. We're so lucky to have you here. And uh, Carol Murphy, by the way, Liz, has promised that she'll do something on uh, terminology for the non-lawyer. She and Bill Charlton have written a book about that, and they'll do that sometime in January after they get past all these conferences. Oh, that's awesome. All right. Well, that's going to wrap us up for today's In Legal Terms. Thank you again, Justice Pierce, for being our guest. Our call screener today has been Java Chapman, and our board engineer is Michelle McAdoo. So for Professor Richard Gershon, who hosts from the University of Mississippi School of Law, I'm Liz Gill. Up next is our Tuesday Southern Remedy show, Relatively Speaking, with Dr. Susan Buttress. But we hope you'll join us again next Tuesday, Election Day, at 10 a.m. for In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. 